0: Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Jeff Shepherd was going to be a Navy chopper pilot until a knee injury forced him to reconsider his career choice. So, Jeff joined the job. His brother Phil was already in Victoria Police. The former sergeant worked in operational duties at Footscray Police Station, Altona North DSG, and Brunswick before joining the homicide squad and being promoted to sergeant. But that's when everything changed for Jeff. He resigned to become a fully ordained and credited Baptist minister and is currently based at Mill Park Baptist Church. Hi Jeff and welcome to The Crime Couch. Thanks Rochelle. good to be with you. Question number one, why a chopper pilot? What attracted you about that career?
1: I always wanted to join the military I I don't really know why I always wanted to join the military so I was interested in the army and the navy not so much the air force and then it just seemed like a really good thing to be able to do within the navy Uh, I thought imagine being able to land a helicopter on the on the deck of an aircraft carrier it'd be fantastic.
0: Was it a natural fit for you to join the job and to follow Phil?
1: I think it was, yeah. Like, I, I, I was really interested in the police force, and not just from Phil. I knew a couple of other people that were doing it as well, and so it was something that... A job that I always thought would be a lot of fun to do, and so as soon as I knew the Navy wasn't turning out for me, my mind turned straight to policing. What attracted you about the job? I always liked the idea of community service. I like, I like the idea... Not at all to suggest it's wrong for someone else, but I never never felt any attraction to spend time just making money or, or making money for someone else or for some company. I always felt like I wanted to be able to just do something where I felt like it was really counting and really changing people's lives. And I do emphasise in that because we, we, need, we need people who do make money. We need people, we need companies that make money too, but not for me. Uh, my, my fit I always felt was some sort of community service where I was helping people.
0: And when you actually joined the job, Jeff, was it what you expected at the academy?
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, the academy was really easy compared to the Navy. Like I, I imagined that, that the academy would be similar, but it really, it was a lot easier than the Navy. And I loved my time in the academy. It was, it was good. I had a great squad. Uh, we had a lot of fun together. We formed friendships and I've got friendships from that time which was in 1985 when I joined I'm still friends with them now so it was it was enjoyable it was good and it was demanding but it wasn't perhaps as demanding as I thought it might be it it was it was was okay it was was easy enough
0: it's interesting you make the parallel with the navy because I never would have assumed that the navy was actually harder in from a terms of like recruitment process, but it actually was.
1: Oh sure, yeah. I, I was I was doing an officer training program in the navy, and that was that was super demanding. and And I'm not even sure that I was keeping up with it. I mean, I ended up having to leave because of my knee, but I'm not even sure that I was really keeping on top of it. It was it was demanding. I was studying. I was doing a university degree and and doing my military training at the same time and officer training it was it was all consuming and demanding and there was, there was strict discipline and it took me a while to get used to that and fitting with that so it was it was demanding
0: jeff you worked in footscray during the late 1980s in the special duty squad give us a word picture what was the suburb what were the crimes you were up against in that sort of
1: time Footscray then in that time, the reason they set up the special duty squad was because it was really one of the drug capitals of Melbourne. There were a couple of other ones as well, but Footscray was really hot at the time. And so almost everything that we did in the special duty squad, I'd say, I'd say just about everything we did was drug related, be it from street, street drug users and prostitutes to drug dealers, low level, medium level, we, we, we dealt with a couple of high level drug traffickers and then crimes that spun out from that, robberies and, and thefts of people, but it, but it was all drug related um, and, and uh, it, was, it was all challenging, <laughs> it, it, you know, took up took up lots of time um, and we worked really hard but it was really enjoyable and I learned a lot too. Um, the guy that was running the special duty squad when it started um, was a guy by the name of Mark Harris, and um, and Mark had um, come from the armed robbery squad as a senior detective, and he ended up going back there as a sergeant after that. Um, and, and he was just a he, he was just an incredible man to work with and learn from in terms of his policing skill and dedication and passion and commitment, just incredible. So it was a really valuable time for me.
0: And when we're talking drugs, are we talking heroin? Are we talking crack? Or what are we talking in the, in those days?
1: Mainly heroin in those days. Crack and, and amphetamines you would come across from time to time, but uh, it was almost exclusively heroin, yeah.
0: You were in the DSG and you're in the CIB before you joined the Homicide Squad, and those years in the Homicide Squad were 1992 to 1996. Now, what did that mean to you, being part of the Homicide Squad and in those crews being headed up by Rod Wilson and Paul Hollywood?
1: Wow, well, the Homicide Squad, I always aspired to do that. I can remember the day that I graduated. Um, and marching out to receive my award from, and it was Deputy Commissioner Keith Thompson at the time. The, the Chief Commissioner was Mick Miller, and he couldn't be there that day. So it was Deputy Commissioner Keith Thompson. And I remember him uh, saying, Congratulations, what would you like to do in the job, Geoffrey? You know? And I said, Oh, sir, I'd, I'd, I'd like to. I've forgotten the exact words I used, but I told him I'd love to join one of the major crime squads, probably the homicide squad, you know. And so I always aspired to that. I just sort of, for me, it just felt like if you're investigating murders, and obviously then there are are other things involved as well, police shootings, but um, death is really at the top of the tree, you know. And so it just felt like the ultimate challenge to be able to do it. And to do it well and the homicide squad had a really good reputation within the police force at the time and so i, I just wanted to aim high you know so that was what i set my heart to do um, so to get there then and then to learn because you work with very good detectives in the homicide squad you, you know it's there are really impressive people that go there and to learn from some of those people, and so yeah, I was. On, I worked with Rod Wilson's crew for a while, and then I went over to Paul Hollywood's crew. And Paul, uh, uh, Paul, uh, uh, there's no secret. Paul would be known as a fairly hard taskmaster, and um, and and a fairly strong leader. And, and and you know, I'm not sure that everyone always took kindly to that. My attitude was. He can be as strong as he wants to. He can be as autocratic as he wants to, and he can dictate to me all he wants to. When I look at his how good he is and and the runs on the board that he's got, he can tell me what to do all he wants because because I know that I'll I'll learn volumes from it, and I did, you know. And so and they weren't the only ones. There were plenty of good people, but just a really, um, really challenging and stimulating four years that I spent. I, I loved it, you know. Like if I had two lives, <laughs> I'd I'd do that for a lot longer and and do what I'm doing now for a bit bit longer as well. But I don't have those two lives, you know. But I loved it.
0: I suppose did you recognise that your skill set really became enhanced, like as a detective, going from operational and working DSG and CI, and then going into the homies. What did you, you know, what were you, what were the skills that you acquired? Do you think?
1: Well. Everything at the homicide squad gets done properly, um, and not that even there we would get always get all the resources that we wanted or that we felt we needed. But we got we we had a lot better chance of doing it there than we did anywhere else, just because of the nature of the crime that you that you're investigating. So everything being done so well um, and so meticulously, you just you learn there and you have to learn if you're going to be part of the homicide squad you have to learn uh, to do things uh, in a really in a really good way and to a high standard of perfection and thoroughness you know um, that you might not have to do at a suburban CIB and so and when I say CIB the criminal investigation branch is a local detective so I think in homicide you 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 do that well because that's expected. That's the level of scrutiny that's expected through the coroner's court, and then, and then especially into the supreme court as well. And you just become used to doing everything you do that way. And so then, in my case, I become a sergeant at Richmond, and and I'd go out there, and you know, I'm now a, you know a first line supervisor for young constables and senior constables and sometimes something would happen and, and you know I'm the sergeant and giving leadership about the way that we investigate this particular crime or, or the way that we process these offenders and I could see these young guys looking at me like I was something superhuman you know and I, and all I'm doing is doing exactly like it's just 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 normal you know and so it's it's just really good to work at a, to, to work at a high standard and to be in an organisation where everyone works at that high standard, and so it's not it's expected and it's just part of what you do.
0: You investigated what became known as the first of the underworld murders, and that of course is the murder of Gregory Workman. What were you up against in in the underworld when you investigated that?
1: You probably better ask, what weren't we up against? Uh, like, we, th- as you said, that was really the beginning of what we, we now look back on and say that all these, all these series of underworld murders, we didn't so much know that at the time. Uh, and it was funny because I, I was dating a girl at the time who became my wife and she's from Canada and, and she had some relatives in Melbourne and they were staying in St Kilda and we'd been there for dinner together the night before and I knew that I was on call and I was explaining to them how well, St Kilda's not, not not too bad of an area now. It used to be a really bad area around here, but now it's it's getting a lot better, and so it's a good place for you to be staying. And it was just funny then, at whatever time the next morning, four or five o'clock, the pager went off, and we had a murder in St Kilda, just not far from where we were with them, <laughs> you know. Um, so I, I think it was just it was the beginning of um, working with a whole world of, of people, and of not getting the information that often not getting the information that you needed to get directly or in an evidence form and then with witnesses um, and there were there were a couple of at least a couple of key witnesses there who who you wouldn't describe as being part of the underworld at all but the underworld and the, and the people in the underworld certainly got to and influenced and Uh, and directed those witnesses and so that became extremely challenging to deal with and it led us to like a couple of those witnesses disappeared quote unquote um and it meant that we, we we couldn't prosecute the the offender you know so it was Alphonse Gangitano that we charged with that murder and he was he was in prison on remand for several months uh and we had to withdraw the charges and, and, and he got out um so it, it was is not a straightforward murder case and not a straightforward go and speak to your witnesses and find out what they need to tell you there were all sorts of barriers to overcome on the way to getting there
0: and jeff that's a new low isn't it for melbourne's underworld in the in the terms of i would imagine previously that had never occurred where the witnesses had been got at
1: probably not as a like not at such a high level i mean i'd been part of earlier investigations as well in in the in the fruit and vegetable market you know and and so it was a similar sort of dynamic there but different again you know dealing with the with the calabrian mafia similar principles but different rules of operation as well um and so but generally speaking no you're right those those rules don't operate but when it's amongst a, like as I say, a, like a world all of its own, that world's got rules of rules of operation and engagement, and and they're not necessarily the same as the ones that you and I live by.
0: And you've got to also learn those rules before you do your investigation.
1: Yeah, and you and you can't be naive to those rules as well, you know. Um, and so oftentimes then a conversation when we're talking with someone there. Uh, it's it's not all that it seems. And so the conversation will be w- words spoken at one level, but that's not at all what's going on in the conversation. Everyone knows what's going on in the conversation, but that's not what's being spoken about. And so you have to find ways in there, and more often than not you can find ways, uh, but it takes a lot of hard work and ingenuity to to work out how to find ways to do that and to, to press through to find the information that you need within the realms of what's legal and, and what's ethically correct. So it, it's much more challenging than just going to a house and asking someone oh, what happened and they tell you what happened. It's a whole lot more challenging than that. Jeff, at the end of a big day,
0: one of your former homicide colleagues, Andrew Guski, hmm. recalled to me that while he was tucking into a meat pizza and too many beers, he looked over and he noticed that you were reading a Bible. When did you get the calling, Jeff?
1: Oh, wow, I'm imagining. I don't remember the exact story. I'm imagining that we were probably away somewhere by the sound of We're probably in a in a hotel room or something like that. Look, I, I was reading the Bible since I was a since I was a kid. You know, it was part of. I was born into a family where I, I probably went to church from the. First Sunday after I came home from hospital as a baby. And so, God and therefore, then the Bible, you know, as God's word, have always been important to me. And they were while I was a police officer. That said, I loved my job as a police officer, and my intention was to stay in it. And I remember there was a time back in 1987 not long after I graduated and I got called unexpectedly into the chief commissioner's office and it was it was good news. I was finding out some some good news for him, but it, but it was a total surprise, and I had no idea it was coming. And I was just a really young constable, and it was Mick Miller, the chief commissioner. Mick Miller, just an incredible man. And I can remember sitting there, and he he asked me, "How do you take your tea?" And at the time, I don't I don't think I even drink drunk tea at the time. But I said, "I'll oh, just whiten one, please, sir." <laughs> and, and um and we were sitting there talking. I can still remember sitting in his office, looking out over Melbourne, and he said to me, "Jeffrey, what would you?" What would you like to do in the police force? And I I know it probably sounds arrogant to say it now, but I I just looked at him. I said, "Oh, sir, one day I'd like to do your job." (laughs) And and he he liked that. He he thought that was great, you know. So that was my ambition. I wanted to try and try and go as far as I could go. I loved being a, a police officer. I loved being a detective. I loved it all. But also at the same time, I loved. Uh, like I certainly certainly had a strong relationship with God and that was that was the the center of my life and then I used to I used to get asked to go and speak at camps and at churches and when you would go to do that if you're a cop you've got lots of good stories to tell you know and so that was why and I was young and and so as I did that I just loved it you know and so it was always this tug of war of which one do I love more? And I would usually, I would always end up deciding I love the police force more. And then, well, you said, when did I get the calling? And it's a long answer to your question, but when I got asked then, I, I got asked to become a youth pastor at the church that I was going to at the time. And, and I just, it took me two months to make the decision. And I was married by then, and so my wife was was part of it. And it's the hardest decision I ever made in my life because I just absolutely loved what I did in the police force, but I had to sit there and assess over that two months what is most important to me and how can, how do I believe all the information at my fingertips, how do I believe I can make the most difference to help and and to to help make this world a better place and to help in, in my case there, to help people to have the opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus. You know, um, How can I do that? And so for one person in my situation, you know, you talk about my brother Phil. Uh, Phil might be or someone else might be far better off doing that through the police force. I felt that for me in that situation, given everything I had, the way that was most effective for me was to get out and to, to do that. So as I say, it's the hardest decision I've ever made. Uh, like, <laughs> I never planned to leave. And uh, and I loved what I did. And I, I don't look back on it with anything but positive memories. <laughs>
0: Jeff, Andy Guski also said you're an absolute, I'm quoting him, a privilege to work with because of Jeff's excellent work ethic and professionalism. Was this how other colleagues viewed you?
1: You'd probably have to ask them. (laughs) uh, Look, I'm not sure. That's really good of of, of Andy to say that. Um, Look, I'm sure I always did my best. That's what I can tell you. Did my best. And I and I I was committed to working hard and to working honestly, Um, and and that was I mean that was that was the way I was raised. That was my was my you know my my parents were like, and the way they they taught us is to uh, you know um, to give more than what you uh, than what you're paid to give. And so I tried. It's good that Andy sees me that way. Hopefully the others did too, but I don't know for sure.
0: You. Also studied extensively. I mean, that's very impressive. While you're working as a police member, you qualified with a Bachelor of Arts and two Master's degrees in Divinity and Theological Studies. Are you happy with your decision now, Jeff? Any regrets?
1: No, I don't have any regrets. I, I've got a fair bit of nostalgia sometimes looking back because, as I say, I just policing wasn't just something that I liked. I loved it, you know, and I was very committed to it. So there's nostalgia, but I don't have regret looking back and and I've loved studying, you know. I have done all of that while I've been working. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't like to have studied full time and, and not worked or worked part time. I, I always wanted to do it more as a as an add on to my work rather than the other way around. And and I'd love to do some more study. I, I can't at the moment, but I, I'd love to I'd love to do some more before I leave this earth. How does being a former cop influence you
0: as a Baptist minister and a pastor?
1: Oh, I think probably in a number of ways. Like, it's just really good. We don't, in the job that I'm in now as a pastor, there's not much point being in that job. Well, you're not going to do a good job of that if you don't have a bit of a sense and a clue on the way the world works and the way that people work and then and the same is true you know like I do some chaplaincy work as well and and so to, just to have a to have a, a sense of the way the world works and the way that people think and the way that people operate and the sorts of issues that people deal with you just you can't fast track that you have to you have to learn that through life and through experience and I think the police force was just a really good way to learn that I mean my goodness yeah you come across some, some fairly stark realities of life as a cop and and it gives you a fair bit of realism about the way people think and operate. Um, so now I, I hope it helps me in doing that, just in, in understanding the way that people work and understanding the way that other cultures work sometime as well. Um, there's a lot of cultural differences and where I'm working at the moment is is a highly multi-ethnic area of Melbourne and so to understand the differences in cultures and I'm not even saying that I understand them fully but like to have some some grasp of that and I mean practically maybe I've got a got a, a more highly tuned sense of when people are telling me lies or or leading me on or you know the message is not the message uh, maybe I, I don't know I'd like to think hopefully I do um, and you learn these things in life anyway over time, but I think policing just is a really good good base to spring from because it helps you to just have a pretty pretty realistic grasp on the way the world works.
0: Absolutely. And you got, as they say, a front row seat to the greatest show on earth, as Mick Miller has once said. Mm. And you got it also being qualifying at such a high level. I'm really interested to know how do you view crooks now and violent crims?
1: Oh, I think once you're a cop, you're always a cop, and I often joke, and I, I like I don't I don't mean this truly, you know, but I often joke to people and say, look, if if they put me on a jury, well, I, I'll give them the verdict on the first day, you know, I'll just say he's guilty or she's guilty. Now I'm only joking, but I, I still like I'm still repulsed by, especially by violence, and especially by abuse of any kind, and, and that's much more topical now than it was earlier, especially you know when I was in the police force. I've got no less uh, acceptance of that now than what I than what I had back then. I think I see as well some of the different sides to that. And so we had a guy many years ago now who was charged by the police for really serious sexual abuse, r- really serious. And so when it was uncovered, I mean, I I drove him in my car to the police station to to talk to the police about it. So that was, you know, my attitude towards it. But at the same time then, I... I went to his court cases, I wrote him a reference, and then I would go and visit him. And he was, he was in Ararat prison for a number of years, and so I'd go up there three or four times a year and visit him. So, walking both sides of the fence, you know? And so I felt like I could give him authentic and true support whilst having no tolerance whatsoever for the crime he committed. And were, were I making the decision? I'd send him to jail for that time as well. I might even send him for longer. So you see what I mean? Like, I felt like I could do both and I felt like I could do it with integrity as well. And and that's just one example. So I can see, I just know that, you know, like I have this, I have this saying in the front of my journal. It's a quote, but I made it up, <laughs> you know, and it says nine times out of 10, there's an explanation that you don't yet know about. And... So I, I know that hurt people hurt people. Abuse, for instance, that I've been speaking about, more often than not repeats itself generationally. And there are reasons that people do what they do. And so I want to try and help those reasons, but that doesn't mean that we accept or we condone or we, or we wink at the, the crime. No way, you know.
0: Do you think crooks can be rehabilitated?
1: Yeah, yeah i think they can definitely i'm sure they can i'm sure they can how often does it happen that's that's the question and so there are there are some who you know like through the very best efforts of so many people are not re- rehabilitated and and that's how they live and die but then there are stories of some who are and then there's stories of some who are and then aren't and then are and, aren't and then aren't. There's, there's a bit of everything in there. But is it possible? 100%, I'm sure of it. But it's also a guy like Robert Lowe, um, who killed Cherie Beasley. And he he died in prison. And could he have been rehabilitated? Uh, that's a question I'm not, I'm not sure how to answer that. Was he rehabilitated? Well, obviously not. I think it's possible. But where. Naive to think that it's going to happen every time. There's a lot of factors that have got to combine together for someone to be effectively rehabilitated.
0: Jeff, finally, what's next for you?
1: Well, I'm loving what I'm doing. You know, working at Mill Park Baptist Church, and and then I'm also doing some chaplaincy, just just a, you know a few hours a week. I'm loving that, and I'm happy to do that for the rest of my life. They can carry me out in a box but I'm open to whatever opportunities come up and to what any any other way that I can more effectively help I, I would I would like to I'd like to study more uh, when that would come at the time probably when I would finish chaplaincy because it, it would just it would give me the time available to do it. I'd love to study some more I'd love to be accredited to in in time to come it'll become law um where I went next year, 2024, it'll become law that that ministers, you know, arising out of the Royal Commission, ministers need to be supervised. So that in the same way that psychologists and counsellors need to be supervised, ministers will need to be supervised now. I'd love to get accredited as a supervisor as well and be able to do a bit of that. Um, I, like I don't think it would necessarily change what I do day to day at at the church, but like I'd love to do some supervision as well. That really interests me. I love being able to have an impact in in other people's. Vocation as well, if I can, and then you know, from a family point of view, like I'm, we're getting older, and 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 our kids are growing older, and so we're in a different stage, and so whatever that that changes, and then the other thing, then Rochelle is like I've got some involvement on some boards for for missions, and and the one that I'm I'm really really excited. about, sorry, I'm excited about both of them, but the, but I'm very involved with Kids International Ministries in the Philippines. And so what's next for that uh, I'm always open to spending even larger chunks of time over there and and making any difference that I can can there as well so I'll continue to do that as well.
0: Well Jeff it's been an absolute pleasure and a delight to sit with you today on the crime couch and thank you very much.
1: Thanks again Rochelle great to talk to you.
0: Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson and I look forward to your company next time on the Crime Cash.